everyone. Welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badri Rao, your host for this program. Autonomy, dignity, and self-fulfillment are the defining zeitgeist of our epoch. People worldwide yearn to live the life they value, which offers them the freedom to be what they intensely desire. With the advent of democracy, we thought we finally had a system wedded to human flourishing. We labored under the illusion that democracy has given us inalienable rights and recognized our personhood. Unfortunately, however, the promise of democracy has proved to be ephemeral. In 2021, the VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden published its findings on the state of democracy worldwide based on a data set covering 200 countries. Its report makes for sober reading. It points out that 87 countries comprising 68% of the global population are autocracies. About one third of the world's population, that is 2.6 billion people, live in nations undergoing autocratization. Only 4% live under regimes that are becoming more democratic. The corrosion of liberal democracy afflicts rich and poor countries alike. Liberal democracies diminished over the past decade from 41 countries to 32, and now have a population share of only 14%. India, often touted as the world's largest democracy, is now an electoral autocracy. The diminution of democratic freedoms has garnered considerable academic attention. The scholarship on the decline of democracy has focused mainly on the distressing rise of inequality. Scholars also point out that democracy tends to spawn its nemesis. Its enemies use democratic institutions to kill it. The demise of liberal democracy is gradual and unobtrusive. Its ebbing engenders a profound sense of socio-economic and cultural insecurity among the masses. This amorphous fear then metastasizes into an implacable opposition to pluralism and liberal institutions. These insights come from a new book, A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries, published by Harvard University Press this year. Subverting received wisdom about the failures of capitalism and liberalism it underscores the urgency of appreciating the sense of material and cultural loss that anti-democrats experience. Its author, Professor Pranab Bardhan, distinguished professor emeritus of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, offers a nuanced analysis of the decay of democratic institutions and outlines concrete strategies for reversing this trend. He argues that insecurity, more than inequality, agitates people. 
It springs from many sources, such as state and market failures, a widespread resentment against the professional and cultural elites, and the anxiety of losing out, a prodigious work of scholarship, a world of insecurity is a harmonious blend of insights from various disciplines in the social sciences. Adopting an international perspective, Professor Bardhan explores the rise of xenophobic majoritarian nationalism, anti-immigration sentiments, and the persecution of minorities worldwide. His analysis is leavened by his profound humanism, his unerring instincts as an economist, and his vision of how we can revitalize liberal democracy and make it work for everyone. A world of insecurity has several singular strengths. First, based on a perspicacious account of authoritarian capitalism in China, it highlights the lacunae of the Chinese model of development, while at the same time noting the indubitable strengths of its system of governance. Professor Bardhan exposes the hollowness of authoritarian capitalism and explains that the Chinese success story is not a vindication of its dictatorial style, but a distinctive feature of its historical legacy. Second, building on his bracing analysis of the malaise of liberal democracy, Professor Bardhan offers a roadmap for revivifying it. He first adumbrates the conflicting arguments surrounding foundational values of social democracy, such as liberty, equality, and fraternity. He then explains how social coordination mechanisms, the state, the market and the local, com the local community can be repurposed to implement these values. Third, Professor Bardhan offers several concrete proposals to revive social democracy. He favors universal basic income for economic insecurity, not for economic inequality. Professor Bardhan champions labor reforms and pleads for giving workers a greater voice in corporate governance. Other suggestions include creating green jobs, addressing climate justice, decentralized governance, combating corruption, fostering trust, and promoting international cooperation. Grandiose though they may seem, Professor Bardhan is optimistic about these reforms. He believes the laboring class should be in the vanguard of this transformation and use social media to build cross-class political coalitions. Premised on an indomitable sense of idealism, Professor Bardhan's A World of Insecurity is a clarion call to mass organizations, citizen initiatives, and social movements to invigorate social democracy. He joins me now to discuss his work. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Professor Bardhan. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to join you. And thanks for those very generous remarks that you just made, both you, about my book 
and uh, and my myself. And in fact, I think you have done an excellent job in summarizing the main ideas uh, in the book. Thank you, Professor Bardhan. Let's begin with your analysis of the corrosion of liberal democracy. You begin by noting that it's not only social inequality, but also uh, insecurity that agitates people, makes them uncomfortable. And you have identified insecurity as the linchpin of this whole process. So let's begin by talking about your vision of insecurity. What do you mean by it? And why do you think it's important? Yes, uh, it comes in the context that in recent years, both in the United States and abroad, and both in academia and, and media, inequality has been, uh, has been played up. And there's no doubt the world over inequality is often rising and even when it is not rising the level of inequality is very high and we should all be concerned about inequality but one of the points of departure for my book is that i think preoccupation with inequality may take us away from something else which i call insecurity that exercises the mind particularly of the working classes all over the world, not just in the United States, all over the world. Mm -hmm. And let me give you an example. The people who work with in, on inequality, they say how much the top 1% is gaining. I think quite often the workers are much more concerned about insecurity in their own lives mm -hmm. rather than what's happening to the lives of the rich and the famous and the top 1%. <laughs> um, by their own lives, the insecurity that I'm talking about is certainly the insecurity of their jobs, insecurity of their incomes, uh, and insecurity about the future, the economic future of their own children. Mm -hmm. But I also, a large part of the book is also about other kinds of insecurity particularly what I call cultural insecurity. And that has to do with um, uh, a, a general sense of loss, cultural loss, general sense that in, in many countries, for example, there's an anti-immigrant feeling mm -hmm. and that arises rightly or wrongly from a sense of cultural insecurity. There is a feeling that the immigrants are going to interfere with the traditional culture that the majority of the working class population is uh, familiar with. Same with um, uh, in countries where immigration is not that big a problem, uh, but countries where the majority community feels quite often wrongly, but they feel, and I this feeling we have, was, we have to grapple with this, they feel that the minorities are getting an advantage, mm -hmm. the minorities in the population. So that kind of makes the workers go with leaders, which kind of use the divisive rhetoric, try to play up the feelings 
of the workers against the immigrants, against the uh, minorities, uh, the indigenous minorities in their own countries. So what I want to essentially emphasize in the book that the left liberals should apply their mind to this sense of cultural loss. I'm saying not always actual cultural loss, but this perception. And one is to somehow fight that perception. For example, in many countries, and I, I mentioned it in my book, many countries when people are asked, uh, how large do you think is the um, um, immigrant population size? Mm -hmm. And most people give an exaggerated notion. <laughs> in fact, uh, they're, they're, the numbers they will say, what is the size of immigrants as percentage of the total population is many, many times the actual. Similarly, um, you've given, uh, mentioned the country of India. In India, it's the, against the minorities. The, the, the leaders are stoking feelings about the minorities. Now, for example, in India, quite often they say minority Muslims are their rate of growth of population is very high. What they ignore, that first of all, the, the Muslim population is only about 14%. So for, the, so for them to outnumber the majority community is just absurd. But more than that, which I want to emphasize, and this is what the left liberals should emphasize. If you look at the Muslim fertility rate, it's lower than the, uh, uh, in lower, in, in, in some parts, Hindu majority part. So there are two states. One state, the largest state in India is Uttar Pradesh. Mm -hmm. And there's another state, which is in south of India, Kerala. So if you look at the Muslim fertility rate in Kerala, which is significantly lower than the Hindu fertility rate in Uttar Pradesh. What is the cause? Is because in Kerala, the Muslims education level, particularly the mother's education level yes. is very important in fertility levels. Mother's education level of Muslims is much better than in the Hindu mother's education level in, uh, in Uttar Pradesh. I'm giving this as an example that therefore the emphasis should be on mother's education, not on the mother's religion. <laughs> and one should try to do something about mother's education. So it's really social, economic issues like education and health, which is what, the, which is what can, uh, uh, can assuage some of the problems that unnecessarily worry the, the the cultural fear of many people. Let me zero in on one particular aspect of cultural insecurity that you flag early on in your book. You say that one strand of cultural insecurity manifests as resentment against the professional and cultural elites. Now, you might recall that Professor Michael Sandel eminent American philosopher has written a brilliant book called The Tyranny of Merit, where he makes this exact point. And he says that those that we disparage and leave behind are extremely upset and therefore there is a revolt uh, from them and so on. 
my question to you professor bardhan is this resentment has accumulated over a period of time how did it start and how did we get to this point i think there are some uh, uh, structural reasons and there are some attitudinal reasons mm-hmm. structural reason is that over time in all countries and certainly in the united states the economy is becoming more and more of a knowledge economy in which uh, knowledge and high skills are becoming more important today compared to say about 50 years back when uh, you know semi skilled people were the majority of workers but today very significant number of workers are skilled technical people so there is this structure as a result of the structural reason the so called professional workers are becoming more important mm-hmm. than the manual workers in manufacturing or transportation so that's a structural reason there's also an attitudinal reason so many of these better paid professionals they are in some sense isolating themselves from the rest of society they will often have lifestyle which is quite different from the lifestyle of the rest of the population they will live in the gentrified parts of the city mm-hmm. they will not live in the same places where the blue collar workers uh, they will not send their children to the schools where the blue collar children uh, blue collar uh, workers children go they will marry <laughs> other professionals or other educated um, their spouses will be more educated than in the case of, so lifestyle um spousal choice school choice all these ways and living in gentrified parts of cities the liberal professional elite and the blue collar workers the gulf has increased and this has not been helped by the attitude of looking down of the former looking down upon the latter and uh, in fact um, the, the some people have called it a brahminical attitude yeah. <laughs> which you will understand so the brahminical attitude of the better educated and in fact the united states the other day some i, I read somebody says the united states is basically two nations now one nation those who have the degree ba and the other those who have not done gone up to the college finished college education of course the latter is still larger sure. than the former but for both the structural reason that i mentioned because the economy is changing and also because the life lifestyle as well as the attitude of the liberal this has caused this problem mm-hmm. now we cannot do much about the structural change it will increasingly become a knowledge economy hopefully education level of everybody will improve over time but that takes time but certainly we can do about attitudinal change and certainly we can do something about improving the health education and and job security of of people so that they don't feel left out i think is you are very right and this is also mr sandel has pointed out 
they feel left left out mm-hmm. left out by the the meritocracy so i think one of the reasons of rejuvenating social democracy uh, has to do with um, this uh, this uh, doing something about this feeling of being left out and there let me emphasize something that i mentioned in different parts of my book is the role of trade unions right i think one one structural reason again for various reasons which i discuss in my book trade unions have been on decline now trade unions decline is not just an economic phenomenon trade unions of course help improving your work conditions improving your wages but i think trade unions have also a different role and that i would call a cultural role because for a long time when unions were important mm-hmm. many workers blue collar workers uh, had the trade as uh, they had the trade unions as an anchor of their life so it was not just an economic political institution it was also a cultural institution right. it provided them uh, some identity it provided them some meaning of life with the decline of cult- uh, decline of trade unions i think in the workers life there is a cultural void and in this cultural void these uh, extremists right wing extremists and the uh, and the uh, and the populists are coming in and this is where i repeatedly in my book i say the left liberal social democrats have to think about this cultural void and do something which at least fills in part of this void so that's that's a major uh, change in the attitude of left liberals let's now move to your uh, views on the local community citing egregious state and market failures you urge local communities to take charge and reclaim what is legitimately theirs something that they are being denied by apathetic officials and politicians and you say that this uh taking back will uh, enhance trust reciprocal relations and will facilitate participation from below all of which is fine my question to you professor bardhan is you know that local communities all over are in a parallel state and in most places they are under the thumb of the local dominant elites how then do you think this process of reclaiming one's rights and taking back what is legitimately theirs is going to come about this question this is a very important question let me handle it both from the economist point of view and then there's a cultural mm-hmm. aspect to it the economic is that i think many local community local community economy mm-hmm. have been allowed to uh, degenerate allowed to get ravaged and this is where the market um, i mean for example in in areas where markets have been allowed to competition from outside not just outside the country mm-hmm. competition from Uh, bigger markets elsewhere within the country have been allowed to destroy communities this is because i think uh, i shouldn't say only because but 
One of the reasons mm -hmm. is that we have the left liberals have ignored decentralized development. So I, I talked, in fact, my, my own research work is a lot on how to revive mm -hmm. decentralized local community um, uh, development. And I think there is a lot of scope today with the uh, expansion of green energy, because green energy can be the, the goal of going toward green energy can be combined with the goal of decentralized development. In fact, people, a lot of people, are, even for electricity, Correct. people are talking about local grids. Uh, similarly, uh, renewable energy quite often is a labor intensive activity. Yes, uh, I, I said there's an economic aspect, there's a cultural aspect. The economic aspect is that I think we have to move more toward decentralized development. Um, and and there are, I, I was giving examples from green technology, but there are many other areas. And, and uh, uh, I can uh, give you different types of examples from rich countries and poor countries. And in fact, there's a whole section in my book on decentralized development. Correct. So that's the way to go economically. Culturally, I think the it goes back to something that I was mentioning before, the local labor organization and civil society organizations have to move. The local governments and the local communities are not captured by the, uh, the narrow local elite. So that it has to, do, to be on both fronts. Please go, go ahead. Next, we move to your uh, analysis of xenophobic nationalism. It is on the rise all over the world. You call it ethno-nationalism, and you contrast it with civic nationalism. Now, xenophobic nationalism or ethno-nationalism uh, is gaining ascendance uh, for economic reasons, as you note. Also because it gives people an ersatz sense of empowerment, makes them feel good about themselves, and so on. Now, your point about civic nationalism is fine, Professor Burden. However, realistically speaking, given the context in which we are in places like India and elsewhere, what prospects do you think are there for the reinstatement of civic nationalism? Yes, let me make a couple of points here. Yes, there's no doubt the forces of uh, ethnic nationalism uh, are very strong. And in all of us, there are, there are elements which people can play on that, you know, somebody else is not being uh, patriotic enough, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, there's a famous saying, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Yeah. And in fact, it's quite often the first refuge of many politicians. <laughs> but um, here, uh, I think I should say human sentiments, there are all kinds of sentiments. Just as we have, most of us have sentiments and emotions of love, most of us can also be, hatred can be stoked in us. Ethno-nationalism is about us versus them. So you stoke feelings against others, against other countries, against, um, against uh, immigrants from other countries and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's us versus them um, is very easy to stoke. And that's why, as you say, 
civic nationalism, and maybe I should uh, just in one sentence, civic nationalism, where the national pride in the, is on the basis of your own country's constitutional liberal values. Now, that's very high sounding. How can you inspire local people with constitutional? But let me give you two examples from two countries. One country where uh, I, I live in and the other country where I'm from. The, I live in the United States, I'm from India. Both countries tried civic nationalism. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of the United States, it's a patio, it's a it's a it's a country where since it's a country, it's largely a nation of immigrants, it's very difficult to inspire people going back to thousands of years. And mm -hmm. as, in, as in, in India they do, they go back to a civilization of thousands of years. In the United States, a country of a more recent country in terms of the immigrants, you need constitutional values. In fact, in my book, you will see, I quote a speech from Barack Obama, uh -huh. where he says, where he says that it's a great strength of the United States that we are not a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. We are a nation out of values enshrined in our constitution. And I think that there have been many lapses Everybody knows the failures, but I think by and large, more than you know, 200, uh, 200 years, uh, 200, almost 50 years, constitutional values are still sacred in the United States. So I would say United States is a great example of civic nationalism with, uh, with departures from time to time. Right. India, until recently, I would say the first 60 years of uh, uh, 50, 60 years of the Indian Republic, it was a nationalism based on civic, uh, civic nationalism. It's only now right wing parties are stoking the other part of everybody has this feeling of us versus them. Stoking those because they find that's the way they can progress. In a way, let me give you an example from a mundane field. You know, very soon the World Cup in um, World Cup in, is going to come up, mm -hmm. and of course, in soccer, uh, more than United States, many countries in Latin America, Africa, and and Europe, uh, soccer is is an extremely important thing, and nationalism is related right. to how the national soccer team is doing. So there's a great deal of national pride in the national soccer team, how it is doing. Brazil is a major example. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the composition of the soccer team mm -hmm. in Europe, large numbers of the uh, significant fraction of the soccer team is by Afri people coming from Africa, people coming from Latin America. So the, you see the diversity Correct. So the working class people are proud of their national team. Half of the national team is from Africa. <laughs> so, but that's a great thing. You are proud, you are you, you emphasize national pride, but you also celebrate the diversity. 
So the, I'm just giving that as an example from a, a mundane aspect of life that is possible. I'm not saying it, is, it will automatically happen, but it is possible to celebrate the liberal virtues of diversity and pluralism and yet feel national pride. And that's the kind of civic nationalism I have in mind. Let's now move to your analysis of the Chinese model of development and the lessons we can draw from it. You know that there are several scholars and lay people who, citing the logjam in liberal democracies, tend to admiringly talk about China and its ability to get things done. They speak glowingly about state-sponsored authoritarian capitalism in China. Now, in your book, on the one hand, you debunk these uh, uh, claims about the putative powers of the Chinese state by saying what the problems are, top-down approach, and uh, uh, you know, the importance of guanxi or relationships and so on and so forth. But you also indicate that uh, the Chinese model of governance has a thing or two to teach us, particularly the way they uh, uh, respect merit in bureaucracy and so on and so forth. And you make an important point, Professor Bardhan. You say all of these things can be accomplished without being <laughs> authoritarian. So could you please elaborate on the Chinese model of uh, governance and what lessons it has for us? I have a whole chapter on, on, on this Chinese model. Let me emphasize two aspects which I think we can learn from the Chinese model. Mm -hmm. And then I'll talk about the, the ugly features of the Chinese model. One is that the way they, the bureaucracy, uh, they, they give promotion to bureaucrats. Um, so, for example, and this is, by the way, nothing to do with the Communist Party of China. This has been there for many centuries. Correct. In China, what they do is that they reward the local bureaucrat if the local area is doing well. So the bureaucrat is an incentive because if my area is doing well, I'll be promoted. So promotion of local bureaucrats on the basis of performance, correct, which is neither in the United States nor in India. In India, bureaucrats are promoted on the basis of seniority, not local area performance. In the United States, bureaucrats change. Whenever the president change, the bureaucrats change by and large. So you don't have that uh, performance-based incentive. Mm -hmm at the local level. That's one. The other is related to something that I mentioned before about decentralized development. Mm -hmm. Chinese case is a unique combination, in my judgment, of political centralization by the Communist Party, but with tremendous amount of economic decentralization. Correct. And this decentralization is down to the district or the county level, not just at the provincial or the American state level. It's at the very local local county and below. Right. I'll give you just one number which will which will which I quote in the book, which will tell you the big difference between China and India in terms of decentralized development. Of the total government expenditure in the whole of China, mm -hmm. 
about 60% of that total expenditure is decided and done at the below the provincial level, at the county level. Mm -hmm. What is the corresponding percentage in, in, in India? 3%. Right. So it shows a tremendous difference in decentralized development. Uh, many of the major performances of China is because they were doing it locally and each area was competing with the other area. You know, we have this uh, good road. So the other county then tries to compete with this county. So there's inter-local uh, competition in performing well. And if you perform well, the bureaucrats are rewarded. So these are the two, the decentralization and the, and the, and the performance uh, incentive are good aspects of Chinese game. The problem the Chinese has has to do with their authoritarianism. And of course, uh, as we have seen in the recent 20th Cong Congress, mm -hmm. when their leader essentially has give, uh, becoming a leader for their life, for life. <laughs> so the, the authoritarianism is, if anything, increasing in, in China. And you surround yourself with your yes, yes men. So, and in fact, they are mostly men rather than right. women. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so when you surround yourself with yes men, yes men, when you make a mistake, nobody's going to tell you that you are making a mistake. Right now, the Chinese government is making a big mistake, mm -hmm. has been making a big mistake in the zero COVID policy. And their policy, policy of not importing vaccine from abroad. So they have to depend on their own vaccine, which so far has not been as effective as the mRNA vaccines of uh, outside. So when you are making a mistake, people don't point out that you are making a mistake. So correction of mistakes takes much longer mm -hmm. in China than in democratic countries. In democratic countries, when you are the leader is making a mistake, people shout and protest. So then the leader has to respond. But in mm -hmm. China, shouting and protesting is not allowed and people around you will not tell you. So that's a big, big problem of China, of the Chinese model and any model of authoritarian uh, uh, government will have that problem. Let's now move to your uh, thoughts on the plight of minorities. You obviously are very concerned about the situation of the minority, their powerless uh, circumstances across the world. And you say that though they may not have numerical superiority, may not have the financial clout to go head to head against the majority community, there are still constitutional checks and balances, there is the separation of power, and so on, all of which you seem to suggest will stand them in good stead. I put it to you, sir, the situation in India, for instance, is truly distressing, as I'm sure you will agree. The minorities in India are at the receiving end, not only from the state, but also from the judiciary and the bureaucracy, law enforcement, and so on. In other words, the guardrails that were supposed to protect them seem to be of no consequence at a time when they need them most. 
This is the situation in other parts of the world too, the plight of the Rohingya, for example, in Myanmar and elsewhere. My question to you then is, what prospects do minorities realistically have to find their place under the sun and how can they go about it? Yes, I think here, the role of social movements are very important. Mm -hmm. When the government is explicitly violating its own constitution, I think in India, the basic structure of the constitution which protects minorities are being violated. Right. Um, in fact, I should mention that this ruling party in India, in some sense, never accepted the constitution. If you go back to the 1948, 49, when the constitution is being made, the ruling party's uh, leaders and their newspapers were saying, we don't like this constitution. This is a Western constitution. Mm -hmm. um, it does not uh, it does not tally with our, uh, India's traditional uh, classical texts. Uh, for example, one, one leader of the ruling party said that it does not, um, um, it, do, it is not consistent with Manu Smriti, which is a classical Hindu text. If it did, then we have to reinstall the caste, caste system, right? I, I could go into other things, but I don't have time. So in a sense, they never accepted the constitution and then later they played on. But as soon as they got a chance, they're essentially trampling on the constitution right. because the constitution gives basic rights to the minority. And here, one should not just accuse the ruling party. I think the judiciary is not playing its role. In various Supreme Court judgments in India, it is said nobody can violate the basic structure of the constitution. This current government is violating the basic structure of the constitution. So since judiciary is not doing it, the government is violating the constitution, the only way out is large-scale social movements. Of course, the government will try to suppress dissent, imprison opposition, and so on. Yet, there is an example even from in India, the farmers' movement, when they didn't like the laws which have hurried through the parliament, Correct. they had a huge social movement. For one the year. Farmers' movement, and they had to accept, the government had to accept. The problem has not been resolved yet, but the government had to accept. When there's a large-scale movement, the government then will have to pay some attention to it. So I, I would say when the government violates the constitution, and this is back to the civic nationalism, the government invites civic nationalism for the sake of ethnic nationalism, and the judiciary does not provide the, uh, the, the protection. In that case, the only way out is social movements and social movements all over. Right now in Iran, Correct. the way social movement of women is showing it may not succeed, but this is the only way to go when the government is not helping you, when the, uh, the, the judiciary and the lawmaking, law enforcing authorities are not helping you. Movement at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the grassroots level is the only way out. Let's now quickly turn to the solutions you offer to repair liberal democracy. I will get into the nitty-gritty of the solutions you offer momentarily, but for now, let's begin by uh, talking about 
your uh, interest in and fascination for social democracy. What is it about social democracy that you think makes it such an attractive answer to our present challenges? Social democracy, uh, first of all, promises and often does something about social insurance. Mm -hmm. Insurance against what? Insurance against the kind of insecurity I've talked about. Job insecurity, um, uh, the, 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 the uh, income insecurity, etc. And there you see a big difference between the Nordic countries and Northwest Europe, the Scandinavian countries, the welfare state has provided some security to workers. Mm -hmm. But that is economic security. But it does not always provide cultural security, even though Scandinavian countries also provide quite a bit of cultural uh, security because of trade unions being an important part of the social life. <clears throat> but even then, Sweden is a recent example where the right-wing parties, anti-immigrant parties, have become the second largest party mm -hmm. in Sweden. So that's where, going back to what we, which we started, the cultural insecurity, I think even the Nordic countries, they have not paid enough attention up to cultural insecurity to the majority community who are anti-immigrant. You have... United Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You want to say United States is different from Nordic countries because the United States has both cultural insecurity and economic insecurity because the workers are not as the welfare state is rather patchy in the United States. So in a sense, the task for social democrats is much more stupendous in the United States. In Europe, because they have provided some basic minimum economic security, they, are, they should focus on cultural insecurity, here, uh, cultural security, whereas in the United States, I think it's, it's both. Let's but now turn to the uh, question of uh, reforms specifically. And let me ask you a threshold question. You note several factors that make reforms urgent. You talk about technological and demographic changes, the alienation of blue-collar workers, the rise of the gig economy, and a whole slew of factors. And you repose your faith in social democracy and assign centrality to parties espousing social democracy, which is fine, except that these parties, at least in places like India and in the United States and elsewhere, they are in a state of disarray. They are demoralized and they are ranged against a force, a majoritarian force that does not, as you just now mentioned, believe in the Constitution, believe in due process, believe in fair uh, 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 and transparent play, and so on, and crushes dissent. Now, in this context, again, I put it to you, Professor Bardhan, realistically, what is the probability that social democrats will be able to reclaim their lost space and become a viable alternative? Yes, I think social democrats uh, did a lot of wrong things. 
but also it goes back to the cultural gulf between the professional elite and the blue workers and the decline of trade unions. One uh -huh. of the reasons social democratic parties have lost or lost their uh, glamour or lost their uh, attractiveness is because of trade unions decline. Mm -hmm. Earlier to what used to happen, trade unions, which had the support of mainly a blue collar workers, provided solid vote for the social democrats, no longer, because blue collar workers are not voting for the social democrats. So think about the social democratic leaders in the United States and, and Europe, uh, Clinton, uh, Obama, uh, Blair, Tony Blair, Macron in France now, these are social democratic leaders, whatever name their parties are, they're mainly social democrats. Right. Who do they, do they cater to? They cater more to the professional elite. In the cities? In the cities. Whereas the rural areas, whereas the less educated blue collar workers, their need, the going back to the cultural gulf, as well as job insecurity that, that I talked about. For example, you know, one of the big things that I talk about in chapter one is a shock, which, which damage jobs in many areas. In the Nordic countries, what they do, they do a lot of labor retraining. Mm -hmm. So that when labor look, uh, laborer work uh, loses a job, you can easily get absorbed elsewhere with the retraining, continuous retraining. United States is very little of that. So the you allow the China shock to really have a big impact on your jobs, but you do nothing about it. Don't know, your welfare state is patchy mm -hmm. and you don't do much about retraining the workers. So this retraining is part of social democracy. And that's what Scandinavian countries do. They're one of the best countries from that point of view is Denmark. Denmark, I'll, I think I scored this number, spends 2% of GDP on retraining workers. Correct. The corresponding percentage is in the United States is near zero, zero point something. So that tells you that what social democrats could do, but did not do in the United States. So th there are failures and the trade union decline certainly uh, is, is an important point. But there are things that they can do even now. Uh, and I think I emphasize this, give the voice in the governance of the companies. I think in the United States, Elizabeth Warren mm -hmm. is one of the few presid presidential campaign candidates in the last election one of her mottos was giving voice to the workers in the company governance. Why is that important? Because once, and this is the major example I discuss in my book, is Germany. Mm -hmm. In Germany, if you take the large companies, in the large, most of the large companies, half of the governing board of the company, the workers sit, half of the seats in the governing board by workers. Now what it does, so when the company decides to relocate or outsource, they don't care about what's happened to the local workers. But if a significant number of the company board are workers, then they will say, hey, let's do it this way rather than just uh, completely ignoring what's happened to the local community, what happens to the local workers. 
think that's a very important step which I discuss in one chapter quite quite a lot is about giving voice to the workers in the company boards. That's just one example, but that's an important part of the, what social democrats can do. Professor Bardhan, we are almost out of time, but I have two quick questions to ask of you. Uh, can you very briefly talk about uh, universal basic income? Why do you think it's important? And what are the realistic prospects that it will be implemented? Very briefly, I'm afraid. <laughs> universal basic income has been suggested for a long time. Uh -huh. in, in the rich countries, it is a big problem in terms of uh, how expensive it is. So um, universal basic <coughs> income depends on what level. So suppose you want to say a minimum wage level. If you want to give everybody something akin to that, it's very expensive. In the United States, it will be very expensive. Right. Unless you substitute this for other existing welfare measure, welfare policies which are not working that well. So you have to working out, do you want it as a substitute or not? And as soon as you have substituted, a lot of vested interests come in. So it becomes very difficult. So you can work out with examples from other countries. <clears throat> um, Scandinavian countries have done some things which gives you a much higher level. So it depends on what basic income can do. But my book, my main discussion is on universal basic income in poor countries, <clears throat> where in any case, the welfare state is not there. And I work out an example for the case of India, right. where India can afford a universal basic income, not a very good one, but a reasonable, uh, reasonable small level, provided you are prepared to give up some of the subsidies, which at the moment go to the better off the rich people. <coughs> I, I show that in India, about 8% of GDP at the moment are given as subsidies to the better off. Correct. So if, the, if you have the really political courage to take away some of these subsidies from the rich, then you can give to common people, everybody, rich or poor, everybody, you can give a reasonable amount every year. By the way, the current government is giving a very minimal amount of basic income to farmers Correct. in India. But it should be universal, not to some specific groups. Uh, so that, that becomes very important. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question before I bring this interview to a close. Professor Bardhan, you want the laboring class to be in the vanguard of this movement to revitalize social democracy. You say they should use social media to build cross-class uh, coalitions and citizens' initiatives and so on. I put it to you, sir, realistically speaking again, in an age where people are victims of hyper-consumerism, mindless pursuit of hedonism, completely taken over and absorbed in uh, social media and so on, do you think that change is possible? Very briefly. <laughs> you know, uh, I quote in my book the, the, the famous expression, Gramsci, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I have optimism of the will. 
<laughs> I know that the, things are not easy. In fact, all along, I emphasize that things are not up. It's an uphill battle. But there are here and there very good examples. And even during COVID, mm -hmm. some communities behave very badly. But in some communities, people came and helped each other. And in fact, one example that I cite in the book is from London County of Camden. Mm -hmm. Correct. It's a great example of people coming together. And if you even take a poor country, London is, a, is a, from a rich country. In poor country like, say, India, it, throughout this COVID, a group of women workers, they're called ASHA workers in India, they're underpaid. The people really uh, don't care about them. But throughout that, taking great risk on their own part, they have helped out patients, the COVID. So I, there are examples. Unfortunately, there are not that many examples. That's why people get pessimistic. But it is possible. Instead of, if we emphasize all the time how to hate others or how <laughs> us versus them, if we do community cooperate, and this is to be the spirit of social democracy, solidarity. In fact, you, you remember the Polish work uh, example, they, their name was solidarity. Correct. Solidarity is the mainstay of social democracy. And it is possible to inspire people to do things which improve uh, not merely total welfare, but improve our solidarity. And let, let me end there. Thank you, Professor Bardhan. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and your Welcome. insights. Welcome. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss stolen wealth, hidden power, the case for reparations for mass incarceration, written by Dr. Tesseli McKay, a postdoctoral research fellow at Duke University. Dr. McKay's book, published by the University of California Press this year, offers an eye-opening account of the destruction wrought by mass incarceration on black communities. Based on compelling and exhaustive analysis, she points out that the economic value of the damages caused to black individuals families and communities totals $7.16 trillion, roughly 86% of the current black-white wealth gap. Drawing on principles of transitional justice that have guided other nations in moving past eras of state violence, stolen wealth, hidden power, presents a comprehensive framework for beginning intensive individual and institutional reparations. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.